Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey that the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. Parsons, to me, is the greatest unknown, uh, uh, I don't know what to call him, philosopher, scientist, uh, whatever he was, he was the greatest, he was one of the greatest men of the 20th century who was not known. Most people have heard of Buckminster Fuller and Albert Einstein and Aleister Crowley to some extent, uh, James Joyce. Jack Parsons is racially unknown, and yet he was more than anybody else responsible for the American space program and the fact that a man as Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. He's responsible for the whole space program, and he was one of the greatest libertarian philosophers who ever lived. His book, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, seems to me one of the greatest statements of libertarian philosophy ever written. And if I had a million dollars, I would print uh, enough copies of that to put one in every home in the United States so that everybody would have a chance to read it. Uh, I'm, I'm a very ardent libertarian myself, but I disagree with most libertarians about a lot of issues. Jack Parsons is the one libertarian I agree with about almost everything in the 20th century. There are some 19th century libertarians I agree with about almost everything, such as Lysander Spooner, Ezra Haywood, Benjamin Tucker, but they're almost all forgotten, like Jack Parsons. Libertarianism does not have much popularity, although this country was founded on libertarian principles. Uh, Jack Parsons was not only a great libertarian philosopher and a great scientist, but he was a very gifted and talented and philosophical and intelligent occultist, which is hard for a lot of people to understand. Most people think you're either a scientist or an occultist. You can't be both. Jack Parsons is the classic example of that you can be both. There are many other cases in history like Isaac Newton, Giordano Bruno, Johannes Kepler. But Parsons was the only one in recent times who was undoubtedly a major scientist, or at least a major engineer, 
which meant that he had to have a lot of basic scientific knowledge to be such a great engineer and a major practicing occultist. And so the fact that he was a scientist, an occultist, and a libertarian makes him a tremendously fascinating and important figure. And the reason he's not generally known is because most people can't understand how you can put science, libertarianism, and occultism together in one head. And that's why Jack Parsons is so important. He did it, and, uh, and he was probably murdered by the United States government just because of that. Either that or he died in an accident, depending on whose story you believe. What's going on out there, my fellow aberrations? How are you doing? I am back. Back in black! I hit the sack! I've been so long, I'm glad to be back, yeah! Sorry. Um, so, I hope everyone is doing well. And I have a pretty cool show for you today. And I hope that you took the time to listen to the last show about the Proud Boys. I got mixed responses from that one, as I knew I would. But it's just one of those things that I wanted to do to kind of clear up some of the BS that was being bantered about in corporate media. And just to show how things can be taken out of context and how entire reputations can be destroyed by corporate media within a matter of seconds really so if you haven't listened to that one i suggest you go take a look at it this week i'm going to talk about one strange angel and i'm talking about jack whiteside parsons you know his uh, real name was john whiteside parsons but he was born a marvel Whiteside Parsons, M-A-R-V-E-L, yes, Marvel. And many people say that Tony Stark's father, I forget his name now, was actually based on Jack Parsons, which I suspect it was because if you look back at some of the old comics and the cartoons, he looks just like Jack Parsons, as does Tony Stark for the most part. And if you're in the conspiracy community, the alternative media community, if you've read about the occult, if you're into that kind of stuff, then you probably know a lot about Jack Parsons, or at least know some things about him and how he teamed up with one L. Ron Hubbard for something called the Babylon Working. Yes, he was an occultist, a very intelligent man, but he was also an occultist. Now, I'm going to do the show just like you don't know who he is because a lot of people that are going to listen probably won't so it says here on military wiki john whiteside parsons born marvel whiteside parsons october 2nd 1914 and passed away june 17th 1952 he was an american rocket and chemical engineer rocket propulsion researcher inventor businessman, writer, and Thelemite occultist. Parsons was associated with the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, and was one of the principal founders of both the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, and the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. He invented the first castable composite solid rocket propellant and pioneered the advancement of both liquid and solid fuel rockets. 
He is greatly known as really the guy who helped us get to the moon, if you really believe we went. But that's a whole nother show. And uh, no matter what, this guy was very, very smart, very intelligent. And a lot of people have talked about his occult side in the uh, kind of conspiracy community. But I found some of his writings that I thought were very interesting. And uh, I couldn't help but just be kind of blown away by them in a sense because it was like, well, it was almost like reading the Founding Fathers or maybe reading Rothbard, Mises, or Hayek uh, in the libertarian community. And it just blew me away because I agreed with pretty much everything the guy said and uh, had no idea that he thought that way about politics, policy, and government. But uh, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. And it was a different time. the only way I could describe his outlook was he seemed like a minarchist, which is kind of where I fall in after taking in all the different kinds of uh, systems and looking at them and thinking about them and thinking long term. Um, I think that government will always go wrong, will always go bad, and the only way to kind of keep some kind of a semblance of order would be to have a very, very vigilant citizenry. And with our representative system, we could have had that and made this thing last a whole lot longer. But the people, you know, they didn't keep their side of the bargain up. And through countless, countless hours of propaganda, countless, countless dollars going to that propaganda for distraction and division, we have dropped the ball as vigilant citizens. But anyway... Never mind that, let's get back to Parsons. So, it says here further in the military wiki, after a brief involvement in Marxism in 1939, Parsons converted to Thelema, the English occultist Aleister Crowley's new religious movement. In 1941, he joined the Agape Lodge, the Californian branch of the Thelemite Ordeo Templi Orientis, or the OTO. At Crowley's bidding... He replaced Wilfred Talbot Smith as its leader in 1942 and ran the lodge from his mansion on Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena. With his friend L. Ron Hubbard, he conducted the Babylon Working, a series of rituals designed to invoke the Thelemic goddess Babylon, spelled B-A-B-A-L-O-N, to Earth. They continued the procedure with Marjorie Cameron, whom Parsons married in 1946, after Hubbard and former girlfriend Sarah Northrup defrauded him of his life savings. Parsons resigned from the OTO and went through various jobs while acting as a consultant for the Israeli rocket program. Amid the climate of McCarthyism, he was accused of espionage and left unable to work in rocketry. In 1952, Parsons died in a home laboratory explosion at the age of 37. The police ruled it an accident, but many associates suspected suicide or murder. 
Now, of course, I'll put the wiki in the show notes and you can check it out because it's got a ton of references and it's really good in there. So obviously, L. Ron Hubbard was the founder of Scientology. As I mentioned, with uh, along with Parsons, they tried to conjure up a spirit named Babylon, which was a goddess. And uh, some say that Crowley actually said they never closed this portal that they opened up and it allowed for a lot of evil things to come through the portal. I don't know. That's just what they say. Anyway, um, to get away kind of from the occult side of Parsons, which we may do a number two and cover that, but it's been covered by a lot better podcasters than I. We'll look at the writings that I found where he talks about government and policy and how things should be handled because this was kind of uh, an eye-opening kind of thing for me because I had no idea that he had written about that. And um, I think for me it goes to show, just like we found out in the shows about Freemasonry, that too often you just hear researchers pretty much throw blanket statements over something as if it's all bad. But most things are pretty nuanced and have both good and bad. People are pretty complicated. And, you know, even though we're sold the Superman versus supervillain, black and white, G versus E, you know, this, this simplistic world, things usually aren't so simple. And so just goes to show just like the founders had a lot of great ideas but I don't believe in all their views because they were Freemasons and Deists. And that's just not my thing. But, you know, I think that we need to look deeper into things because, if anything, it helps us to understand the world that we live in and remember that, you know, the corporate media, GovCorp, education, kind of want us to think everything's black and white, and that way we are easily fooled easily manipulated and easily um, directed to go after one another. And, um, well, you know, if we can learn to dig past the headlines and peel the onion, as they say, then we'll start actually learning how the world works and possibly find our place in it and how we need to adapt to the future. Now, I don't want this show to be just a boring read. I know I read a lot sometimes on these episodes, but this is really important, I think, because you're not going to hear this probably anywhere else. So, in his writings, which were eventually compiled and called Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, this is the preface. Since I first wrote this essay in 1946, some of my most ominous predictions have been all too grimly fulfilled. Public employees have been subjected to the ignominy and indignity of loyalty oaths and loyalty purges. Members of the United States Senate, moving under the cloak of immunity and the excuse of emergency, have made a joke of justice and a mockery of privacy. Constitutional immunity and legal procedure have been consistently violated, and that which once, not so long ago, would have been a universal outrage in America is today refused even a review by the Supreme Court. 
the golden voice of social security, of socialized this and socialized that, with its attendant confiscatory taxation and intrusion on individual liberty, is everywhere raised and everywhere heeded. England has entered the aegis of the regime synonymous with total regimentation. Austria, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia have fallen victims to communism, and the United States is in the process of making deals with the barbarous and corrupt dictatorships of Argentina and Spain. As I write, the U.S. Senate is pursuing a burlesque investigation into the sphere of private sexual morals, which for all its buffooneries will cause pain and sorrow to many innocent persons in an intolerable and grotesque invasion of their rights. The inertia and acquiescence which allows the almost complete suspension of our liberties would once have been unthinkable. The present ignorance and indifference is appalling and almost unbelievable. That little which is worthwhile in civilization and culture is made possible by the few who are capable of creative thinking and independent action with the grudging assistance of the rest. When the majority of men surrender their freedom, barbarism is near. When the minority surrender it, we are in the dark ages. Even the word liberalism is suspect through unmitigated efforts on fuzzy heads who believe it synonymous with Russian bootlicking, and humanism is no more than a front for the totalism of the church. Science, that was going to save the world back in H.G. Wells' time, is regimented, straightjacketed, scared shitless, its universal language diminished to one word, security. In this 1950 view, some of my more hopeful utterances may appear almost naive. However, I was never so naive as to believe that freedom, in any full sense of the word, is possible to more than a few. But I have believed and do believe that these few, by self-sacrifice, by wisdom, by courage, by continuous and tremendous effort, can achieve and maintain a free world. The labor is heroic, but it can be done. By example and by education, it can be achieved. This is the faith that built America. This is the faith America has surrendered. And this is the faith that I call on America to renew or perish. We are one nation and one world. The soul of the slums look out at the eyes of Wall Street and the fate of the Chinese coolie determines the destiny of America. We cannot suppress our brother's liberty without murdering ourselves. We will stand together as men for human freedom and human dignity, or we will fall together, simians all, back to the swamp. In this late, this very late hour, it is with solutions that we must primarily be concerned. I seem to be living in a nation that simply does not know what freedom is, we believe that it is a word, a piece of paper, something we are told that we have, that we tell each other we have. Indeed, it is more, far more than that. It is to that object, to the definition of freedom, to its understanding, in order that it may be attained and defended, that this essay is devoted. I need not add that freedom is a dangerous thing, but it is hardly possible that we were all cowards. Now see there, I told you. It sounds like something I would say, except way more eloquent. And, um, you know, I can't disagree with really anything he said there. And that was just the preface. So I'll read a little bit more of this because I found it so interesting. This is where the book actually starts. 
Number one, a sword is drawn. For numberless centuries, societies unquestioningly accepted the proposition that certain men were created to be slaves, whose natural function was to serve priests and kings, nobles and great lords, men of substance and property that were appointed slave masters by Almighty God. Further, this system was reinforced by the established doctrines that all men and women were owned, their minds by the church, their bodies by the state. This convenient situation was supported by the considerable body of authority, morals, religion, and philosophy. Against this doctrine some 200 years ago was openly raised the most astonishing heresy the world has ever known, the principle of liberalism. Of course, we're talking about classic liberalism, people. Uh, classic liberalism barely resembles modern liberalism. And if you want to know how that name changed, I think we owe it to Rush Limbaugh, to be honest with you, mostly to have it in the popular culture that liberalism meant altogether something else than what its original definition meant. Anyway, I'll read this again. Against this doctrine some 200 years ago, was openly raised the most astonishing heresy the world has ever known, the principle of liberalism. In essence, this principle stated that all men were created equal and endowed with inalienable rights. The words inalienable rights means rights which cannot be taken away, which belong to a man and his birthright. I say that word funny, don't I? In inalienable. I'm a redneck. I can't talk. This principle appealed to certain intractable spirits, heretics, atheists, and revolutionaries, and has since, in spite of the opposition of the majority of organized society, made some headway. As a doctrine, it has become so popular that it is rendered lip service by all the major states. But it is still so distasteful to persons in authority and seeking authority that it is nowhere embodied as a fundamental law and is continuously violated in letter and in spirit by every trick and expedient of bigotry and reaction. Further, absolutist and totalitarian groups of the most vicious nature use liberalism as a cloak under which they move to reestablish tyrannies and extinguish the liberty of all opponents. Timely, right? Thus, religious groups seek to abrogate freedom of art, speech, and the press, Reactionaries move to suppress labor and communists to establish dictatorships, all in the name of freedom. Thus, because of the peculiar distinctions given to freedom by some of these camouflaged tyrants, it seems necessary to redefine freedom in terms in which it was understood by that depraved cynic Voltaire, the dirty atheist Paine, the traitor Washington, and the radical revolutionary Jefferson, and the anarchist Emerson. Freedom is a two-edged sword of which one edge is liberty, the other responsibility, on which both edges are exceedingly sharp and which is not easily handled by casual, cowardly, or treacherous hands. For it has been sharpened by many conflicts, tempered in many fires, quenched by much blood, and although it is always ready for use of the courageous and high-hearted, it will not remain when the spirit that is forged is gone." Now, since all tyrannies are based on dogmas, that is, on fundamental statements of absolute fact, and since all dogmas are based on lies, it behooves us to first seek for truth, and freedom will not be far away. And the truth is that we know nothing. <laughs> well, man, 
I mean, we kind of don't, but we kind of do. Objectively, we know nothing at all. Any system of intellectual thought, whether it be science, logic, religion, or philosophy, is based on a certain fundamental idea or axiom which is assumed, but which cannot be proved. This is the grave of all positivism. We assume, but we do not know, that there is a real and objective world outside our own mind. Ultimately, we do not know what we are or what the world is. Further, if there is a real world apart from ourselves, we cannot know what it is. All we know is what we perceive it to be. Well, you know, I agree with most of what he said. Um, there are some things I could kind of take exception with. But, uh, you know, there's definitely some truth in most of that. And it's kind of like with the Internet age, we have all this information at our feet at our fingertips but it's almost like as a whole body of people you know the world the more we know or the more we should know the more information we have access to the less we know right the more closed-minded the masses become and so you see like right now with the election you know we're on the heels of the national presidential election you know people are so divided in these two groups and it's really if you watch the people, if you can stand outside the emotions of the two-party system, it really gets silly to watch people fighting over these two guys. These two, it's not even really ideologies anymore. It's mostly just fighting over these two political fashions. You have two accepted fashions, right? Democrat, Republican. And especially with well, for one, Biden being so old, being in the government so very long. Kamala, I think most people realize she's a shyster, and Biden is a longtime shyster. Uh, you know, I posted yesterday, I think it was from 1988. Uh, it was a series of news clips of his different speeches where he openly plagiarized the Kennedys and others. And then, of course, the one where he's talking about graduating at the top of his class. Then that was also found out to be a lie. I mean, this guy's just full of crap, you know. But he made his way up into vice president and now presidential candidate, you know, again. It just goes to show you don't have to have integrity or ideas to rise to the highest levels of government as long as you have the backing of the powers that be, the the you know the ruling class, then you are, or you have the potential to make it, and uh, you know Forbes actually, Forbes put out an article a couple of weeks ago that said over 500 people from the national security apparatus is supporting Biden. Well, why would that be? Because Trump has given the military-industrial complex a record amount of money, along with many of the top Democrats' blessings. They actually even decided on one of the last big military spending bills to give them even more than Trump asked for. So you really have two, two parties that are pro-military-industrial complex. But I think they want somebody in charge at the face that's even more pliable than Trump because, you know, he's kind of unpredictable, even though he's giving them 
a lot of what they want. They want somebody just totally, totally their slave that will do whatever, you know, a yes man. And so that's, you know, we are where we are. But uh, a couple pages over, uh, Parsons is talking about the government. And uh, he says here, politics is concerned with necessity and expediency, whereas science is concerned with convenience. This is not, however, intended to discredit science and reason in their proper spheres. Reason is one of our greatest gifts, the power that differentiates us from the animals, and science is our greatest tool and our best hope for building a genuine civilization. It is curious that this modern truism appears in this system of reasoning as a concession, but in spite of its inestimable value, science is a tool and has nothing to do with the ultimate truth. Herein is the danger of science. As a tool, it is so valuable, so useful, and so irresistible that we incline to regard it as the arbiter of the absolute, giving final and irrefutable pronouncement on all things. This is exactly the position that the pedant, the dogmatist, and the dialectical materialist would have us take. Then, posing as a scientist or propounding scientific doctrine, he can persuade us to accept his values and obey his orders. Today must forever be free to overthrow its yesterdays. Otherwise, it will degenerate into ancestor worship. I think that was a pretty interesting excerpt there because so many things that we believe, we believe because it's always been that way. And so a lot of people think that science is immune to those type of things. But that is a lie. More and more evidence mounts up against Darwin. Yet the scientific community, even though the fossil record is lacking in its changes, they still can't let go of a lot of these Darwinistic views because it's the way it's always been and it's become a religion to them and has really nothing to do with science. It's a belief. So, yes, you must question the past. Uh, that doesn't mean the past is always wrong by any stretch of the imagination. And so good old-fashioned common sense is still good old-fashioned common sense, and most of it still applies today. You can use the same common sense your grandmother gave you that her grandmother gave her. So you have to apply critical thinking to all this in, in practical sense which is very, very lacking in our culture today. Okay, let's read on a little bit. But it is necessary that we defend freedom unless we all wish to be slaves. It is expedient that we achieve brotherhood unless we desire destruction, and it is convenient that we grant others the right to their own opinions and lives in order to maintain our own. The intelligent individual will not base his conduct on an arbitrary or absolute concept of right and wrong. It may be argued that all motives and all actions are selfish, since they are intended to satisfy some requirement of the ego. Perhaps this is true of self-sacrifice, abnegation, and the highest altruism. We engage in these things in order to satisfy ourselves to attain some object. The ego may be very broad. A man may include the whole world as part of his ego, and set out to redeem or save this world, for no other reason than that he gained the pleasure from this idea. Such a man, far from being unselfish, is extremely egotistical. Even the artist, 
devoted to the production of pure beauty is so because of his need and his nature. At least such egotism is not petty. The motives of family, love, and patriotism are all rooted in biology. This does not necessarily detract from such actions and motives. Everything in nature is beautiful, and it is no less beautiful because it is understood. But the stupid man will assign arbitrary values to all things in order to protect and justify his own position. His morals are based on things which he wishes were true or which someone else wishes were true. His philosophy pays no attention to relative facts and realities, but in his life he must deal with relative facts and realities, and consequently he is constantly involved with pretenses and evasions. We'll stop right there for a minute. You know, I was talking about how people are complicated, life is complicated, and one of the greatest things I've learned from doing this podcast and doing research now for like 20 years is you go into a subject with a certain mindset usually. You know a little bit about it and you have this preconceived idea of what you're going to find. But oftentimes the more and more you dig, the deeper you dig, the more you unearth these gems or the more you unearth these hidden tunnels of information, if you will. And so so in today's black and white world where, like I said, it's superhero versus supervillain, uh, we don't take the time to even think about what's being presented before us. We automatically have these knee-jerk reactions. But we can learn from everyone. I've often said, if you're not trying to learn from your enemy and, and you automatically assume everything he says is ignorant or wrong, then in a sense he's already beaten you because you can learn more from your enemy oftentimes than you can your friends. And uh, I think it's, it's really one of the coolest things in doing this kind of work, if you will, that it's just an never-ending process of learning new things and learning new ideas and ways to think about things. People can be dirtbags, but still have good ideas about certain issues. And if we stop to actually take a breath, forget about our preconceived ideas for a few minutes, then we can stand to learn so much but I don't know with this fast-paced, scrolling world that we live in if people are up to that. But that's one of the reasons I do this, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. All right, let's read on a little bit here. The enlightened liberal needs no justification. He will realize and accept his inherent selfishness and the inherent selfishness of all men. He will understand living as technique the technique of getting what he wants on the terms he wants. Stealing may be the most direct means of acquiring property, but unless he steals a considerable amount, a prison sentence is a possible corollary of his action. On the other hand, he may observe with dismay the subtle disintegration of character attendant upon the so-called legitimate business life. His problem, then, is not only to acquire the things he needs, but to get them in some entertaining or at least non-devastating manner. Perhaps he will decide it is not worth the effort, but in all problems there is no question of right involved. There is only the question of technique and of cost. Such is the case with freedom. 
if we abrogate another's freedom to gain our ends, our own freedom is thereby jeopardized. That is the cost. If we wish to secure our own freedom, we must assure all men's freedoms. That is the technique. If a liberal were to develop two personalities, and one of those personalities established a benevolent dictatorship while the other continued his liberal activities, it would be only a matter of time until he killed himself. The restriction of others' freedom is self-enslavement and suicide. The dictator is the most abject of slaves. These simple considerations are the logical basis of the philosophy of liberalism. From such considerations and from many more, the fundamental principles of liberalism arise as a code of rights, basic in nature and clear beyond misconception. This code must be the law and beyond the law, an ultimate expression of the dignity and inviolability of the individual. It must be above the meddlings of courts, lawyers, and beyond the whim of the populace and the treachery of demagogues and dictators. It must be the epitome of men's aspirations towards liberty and self-determination, so sacred that its violation by a state, group, or individual is treason and sacrilege. Amen, brother. The Bill of Rights in the American Constitution is a step in this direction, and its study will indicate a more final development. But in a world so threatened by positivism and paternalism, this document is limited both in scope and application. It permits such violations of liberty as the late National Prohibition Law, the Draft Law, the Closed Shop, the Mann Act, Censorship Laws, and Anti-Firearm Laws. It has been said with justification that the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means. Now this is also pretty timely, right? It has been said with justification that the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means. A document so fundamental as a Bill of Rights cannot be jeopardized by arbitrary interpretations. It should need no interpretations. It must apply equally to the state and to every state, municipality, official, group, and individual within the state. It must apply in such a way that the individual or minority need not recourse to elaborate lengthy and costly proceedings in order to protect these rights. It is the duty of the state to provide this recourse to all alike in the manner and to better purpose than life and property are now protected from the more obvious and poorly organized forms of violence. Freedom cannot be subject to arbitrary interpretation and misinterpretation. It must plainly include freedom from prosecution on moral, political, economic, racial, social, or religious grounds. No man, no group, and no nation has the right to any man's individual freedom, no matter how pure the motive, how great the emergency, or how high the principle. Such an action is nothing but tyranny. It is never justified. The question is, are we able to face the consequences of democracy? Boom, we're not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. But, man, he had me going there, right? I mean, it's hard to argue with those kind of things because no matter what you say, you might say monarchy was a better system, even though we only know certain things about monarchies. And we've heard a lot of bad things, and usually... The winners write the history, so we may not even have a clue of half of the bad things that monarchies did. 
we may not have a clue of even half the bad things that monarchies have done throughout time, but one thing I can say for sure, the system that the founders put in place was the best system ever created on paper. Granted, the anti-federalists were correct that our Constitution would erode states' rights, and it did. Um, that's why they insisted upon a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is pretty fantastic, if you ask me. But it would only work, as I said before, if you had a very watchful citizenry to hold these people accountable. And it would have to stay in place through the generations. And people would have to teach their children and their grandchildren to remain vigilant and not worry about Netflix and chill and not get caught up in the left-right paradigm. And we didn't do that. And that's why it's falling apart. It's not the system itself. It's falling apart because generation after generation dropped the ball and we kept getting fooled. We kept getting, uh, you know, distracted. They, the people that wanted to rule us kept coming up with these enemies that would keep us scared to death so we would keep putting up with the loss of freedom at home. And the founders knew that, and they actually warned about those type of things. So, again, it's not the type of system we have. It is what we've allowed to happen throughout the ages. All right. I'm going to continue a little bit more because I'm telling you this stuff is fantastic. Nor is it sufficient that freedom be assured by purely negative means. Freedom is meaningless where its expression is controlled by powerful groups, such as the press, the radio, motion pictures, churches, politicians, and capitalists. Freedom must be ensured, and it can only be ensured by the allegiance to the principle that man has certain inalienable rights, among which are rights to live his private life in as so far as concerns only himself, as he sees fit to eat and drink, to dress, live and travel, as where and how he sees fit and how he will to express himself as he sees fit, to speak, write, print, experiment, and otherwise create as he will, to work as he chooses, when he chooses, and where he chooses, to purchase his food, shelter, medical and social needs, and all other services and commodities necessary to his existence and self-expression at a reasonable and commensurate price. Well, to me, now that part is not really the government's business. In fact, the more they collude with these monopolies, the more expensive things get. And just wait till there's only a couple dozen monopolies to choose you know, all your products from, how expensive it can get then. Because competition drives down prices and you get better products in the long run. But anyway, he says, these rights must be counterbalanced by certain responsibilities. The liberal accepting them must guarantee these rights to all others at all times, regardless of his personal feelings or interests. He must work to establish and protect them and live in a manner commensurate with them and be prepared to defend them with his life. Boom. He must refuse allegiance to any state or organization which denies these rights and aid and encourage all who, without qualification or equivocation, endorses them. He must refuse to compromise these principles on any issues for any reason. 
Such principles, as all principles, are barren unless they are revered and protected by those to whom they apply, unless they are informed by a mature and civilized outlook. They must be interpreted and applied with understanding and sympathy with humor and tolerance. They do not need to be pretentious or hysterical in their application and defense. Insufferable bastards of high principle are sufficiently numerous as it is. Nor can we force his rights upon man. Man has the right to be a slave if he so desires. If he does not defend his rights, he deserves slavery, and that is what he gets. The person who is tyrannized by a member of his family or a friend by public opinion or slave morality is worthy of his condition, and his protestations are those of the hypocrite. Even the physically inferior person who is the subject of a bully has recourse to the equalizing effect of judo, a knife, or a gun. Any necessary means is justified if employed by the individual in defending his basic and inalienable rights. Heavy man, this is heavy, okay? This thesis, which is well illustrated if we consider the behavior of the cat, he will cooperate so far and no further. This is the fundamental principle. He will not be pushed around. No doubt his teeth and claws, together with his willingness to use them, contribute practicability of this stand. There is always one alternative to slavery. We can die fighting. No tyrant can gain more than a hollow victory against a people so committed, and even the individual can find here the ultimate rock of his inviolability. Yeah, that's heavy, dude. That's heavy, right? So heavy. But it is good. The rights of the individual can clearly be defined. His responsibilities and the responsibilities of the state can clearly be defined. His rights end where the next man's begins. Well, I can't argue with that either, right? Go to the next page. Sorry about this. I still believe in paper books. Forgive me. It is the function of the state to ensure equal rights to all. This should be very clear, and it is amazing that the issue is so confusing. In the absence of social devotion to the principles of liberalism, positivists have usurped its name and its phrases in order to propagandize for their various totalitarianisms. This process has been greatly aided by the pseudo-liberalism, which believes that all opinion, contrary to its own, must be suppressed. As I write, allegedly liberal groups are agitating for the denial of public forums to those they call fascist. Americanism societies are striving for the suppression of communist or red literature and speech. Each of these groups is engaged in a frantic struggle to sell out, betray, or destroy the freedom which is their finest birthright and which alone assured their present existence. Freedom is a two-edged sword. He who believes that absolute rightness of belief is an authority to suppress the rights and opinions of his fellows cannot be a liberal. Liberalism cannot exist where it violates its own principles. It cannot exist when the emergency monger and utopia salesman can obtain a suspension of rights, temporary or permanent. And let's think about what we're going through right now with C-19. And let's read that again. It cannot exist when the emergency monger and utopia salesman can obtain a suspension of rights, temporary or permanent, and liberty cannot be suppressed in order to defend liberalism. 
the fundamental principles of liberalism must be most clearly established and defined. The rights of man are inviolable rights beyond the law, beyond the court or the state, beyond the will of the majority. If this is not understood, there can be no liberty. Freedom is not granted. It is the inalienable possession of every man, woman, and child. It cannot be taken away or surrendered. And he goes on to say that if people will not stand up for their rights, then they do not deserve them, which I cannot argue with either. He says the term liberal many times, or liberalism, and it's hard to get the modern definition of liberalism or liberal out of our heads because uh, it's so popular in cultural, uh, you know, cultural circles, pop culture. But you have to think in terms of what classic liberalism meant, which is very close to what libertarianism means today. Okay, I'm going to read just a little bit more here. The liberty of the individual is the foundation of civilization. No true civilization is possible without this liberty, and no state, national or international, is stable in its absence. The proper relation between this liberty on the one hand and the social responsibility on the other is the balance which will assure a stable society. And by no other means, this total annihilation of individuality, can this be obtained. There is no further possible evasion of nature's immemorial ultimatum, change or perish. Now, a little bit below that is part two, the sword and the state, and where he's basically talking about the responsibilities of the state and what it should be doing and only doing. Uh, he's got four things here. In the machinery provided for the function of the state, basic frameworks must be provided to safeguard the rights, number one, of weaker men against stronger men, number two, of individuals against groups, Number three, of smaller groups against larger groups. Number four, of individuals and groups against the state. You know, he's got quite a bit in there about the different things the state needs to do, but not go farther than, which I agree with most of it. Um, he's talking here on the next page. He mentions monopolies. I thought it was kind of interesting because I talk about that quite a bit because you know, growing up, um, when I got into politics, I was heavy conservative. And if you listen to a lot of conservative talk radio, uh, monopolies don't exist or it's not even a big deal. I've even seen uh, uh, libertarians say the same thing. But obviously the good libertarians realize that many monopolies, most monopolies, are created with the help of government cronies. That's how they become monopolies, and that's how they stamp out the competition through overregulation that smaller companies uh, and individuals cannot compete with. So really the collusion, the uh, crony capitalism, corporatism of the government working with large corporations is how monopolies usually get formed. So he says here, you will not get yourself shot if you line my pockets, but if I can convince you it is for public good or the glory of God, that may be another matter. When his activities include a control over the prices of rents, foods, light, power, and other necessities over laws, over expression in print or in public, or any other form of individual life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, 
then his business most certainly becomes the business of the state. The trend towards monopoly is one of the greatest dangers inherent in private enterprise. This trend must be circumvented by public controls. When the press, the radio, the motion pictures are controlled by a small group, freedom of speech is inevitably curtailed and imperiled as it is today. The accumulation of undue power, whether by government, labor, religion, or capital, and or by any other group, must be prevented at all costs. Freedom cannot survive the alternative. Liberty will always be insecure until we realize this one fact. It simply does not matter who has the power or in what name it is exercised. Woo! Ric Flair Chop. The possession or exercise of undue power, whether it is the power to ostracize, to starve, to threaten, and terrorize, to restrict and inhibit, to censor and deny by any group and for any purpose is always wrong. The adequate restriction of power is the bulwark of civilization. It is no part of the function of the state to enter competitively or solely into any business. A state monopoly is as undesirable and reprehensible as any monopoly, but it is the function of the state to rigorously supervise and regulate all such activities in order that those powers are not abused. It is certain that graft and stupidity will enter into this supervision, at least until the public demands officials of a much higher caliber than we have at the present. It is certain that men will err, but it is better that some men have a limited power in order that other men do not have unlimited power. The rights and responsibilities of labor and capital are no more and no less than those of any other individual or group. Neither of these groups or any other group has any right whatever to use economic, political, or social pressure or violence or intimidation against any other group or individual. Those who do so must be held strictly accountable by law and by the rights of man. This, and not counter-violence and intimidation, is the proper recourse of opposing groups. When this law breaks down, the Citizens Committee is still bound by it as a temporary state, if they are not, they are no more than a criminal mob. This by no means denies the validity of the necessity of revolution in extreme cases. When the state decays or collapses, or when the state or groups within the state arbitrarily violate the rights of individuals or other groups, and when all other recourse fails, then a revolution becomes a necessity and a duty. By revolution, I mean armed uprising designed to end tyranny, oppression, and exploitation. But this revolution, to be significant, must be inspired and guided by the principles of liberalism. Such was the American Revolution. But the terror in France was a criminal mob, and the terror in Germany was an organized criminal mob. There are vast differences. The persecuted Negro, Jew, or the underprivileged are fair game for tyrants who would go to woo them to their cause by sentimental exploitation of their ignominy. And such persons are understandably driven to fury or despair by their intolerable treatment. Never stop to think that these tyrants itch to impose the same persecutions on other groups in other names. To avail a revolution must be something more than an inversion. Such persons, beyond all others, should understand liberalism and tolerance. Persecutors and exploiters lurk behind names, institutions, and traditions, often ridiculous and outworn, that receive the lip service of the unthinking. The greatest of the race are betrayed, 
the finest principles are smirched, perverted into wretched booby traps. Liberalism cannot substitute for liberals, and unless its code is informed by their blood, it will decay as it has and become infested as it is. Okay, I'm going to end it all here in just a few minutes. Not all of it. Not me. I'm just going to end this uh, podcast. But anyway, he says, The plutocrat, the demagogue, and the shyster thrive in the carcass of a system splendidly designed to make men free. And the positivist haunts the aromatic vicinity like a jackal, seeking the moment when he may take advantage of the decay to appropriate the corpse. Liberalism must be inspired with new life with each new generation. It must be reconstituted, restored, and reaffirmed, lest, in a moment of quiescence, the carrion eaters close in. But while man is a private individual, no group and no state have any right to the smallest moment of his time or the least fraction of his life. All service must be voluntary. All involuntary service is slavery. Whitewash it as you will. Now, I can't disagree with most of that either. And he gets into the next couple of pages into conscription and unions and those type of things. And he says he really doesn't have anything against unions except for when they tell people what to think and how to think about politics and things like that. He, he does at the end, which happens to be on page 23, which is the builder's number, right? But uh, he mentions the world order, which I'm like, dude. After all this liberty talk, you're talking about world order? So, you know, he talks in there about how our government representatives should watch these people, hold them accountable, prevent monopolies, different things like that. And the problem is, of course, that he wrote that in the late 40s. We haven't evolved since then. Uh, Probably gotten even greedier as a people. Uh, Not everyone's greedy, of course. But it just seems to be that our government breeds these greedy tyrants who are just in there to try and um, organize and uh, better themselves rather than try to make real changes. And I suppose the system is so strong that once they get in there, the beast overtakes them and they just become part of the system. I'll read real quick and then we'll end this about what he says on world order. The maintenance of world order is the proper function of a world state which should maintain a properly armed police force for this purpose. And this shows you what a dreamer he is. Nations are responsible as individuals, and in fact, much more responsible. It is a minimum requirement of civilization that they be held strictly accountable for their acts. In the absence of this minimum safeguard, honorable nations can only depend upon voluntary enlistment of their citizens. A state so dependent upon the affection and loyalty loyalty of its citizens for defense would be most likely to cherish his liberties. It should be a primary tenant of world states. It should be a prime tenant of the world state that no nation can force conscription on any person. The maintenance of a national and world order should depend on persons voluntarily hired and properly paid for their services, as should be the case of any other police force. I won't read any more about that. We're almost to the sword and the serpent part that's part three and i'm not going to even get into that in this show but that's where he gets into the occult and kind of lets loose on how bad he hates jehovah and anything that has to do with christianity 
and it goes back to the Rosicrucians, you know, the book uh, Freemasonry and Catholicism by Max Heindel and how he tells the story of how they believe that it's basically the world is in a war with two bloodlines or essentially two brothers, uh, Cain and Abel. Excuse me, uh, Cain and Seth. Cain slew Abel. And so, once again, I'll just remind you and tell the people that haven't listened to those episodes, they believe that Cain came from the worker creator class. And, uh, of course, Cain was banished away from the Garden of Eden. So he went on to form this other society, which eventually tried to build the Tower of Babel. They believe that Freemasonry came out of Cain's society, Tubal Cain and Nimrod and all the rest. And then they believe that Seth bore a generation or several generations of priests and of um, farmers in the type that raised animals, shepherds, shepherd class. Jesus was a shepherd, of course. So they believe that those two are in this, this war and that mankind is in that war between those two classes and that the Cain class will win and has to win. And that is part of what Freemasonry pushes along with all the New Age groups and the different secret societies, or most of them. So anyway, now that you know that, that's what the rest of this book is talking about. And we'll eventually do a part two on Jack Parsons and his occult beliefs. But like I said, that has been done and talked about quite a bit. I don't know how much detail has been paid attention to it because I've mostly only heard the L. Ron Hubbard Babylon working part and never really heard too much more beyond that, but I'm sure somebody's done it. But anyway, I just wanted to thank you very much for your support and thank you for listening. As always, I just wanted to remind you to always check in on alternatecurrentradio.com and listen to their shows. Check out Boiler Room, Daily Ruckus, Primal Edge Health, UK Column. 21st Century Wire. I, yours truly, am going to be on there soon. The Oddcast is going to have a home on alternatecurrentradio.com. So I want to give a shout out to Hesher and Spore for being so cool to me and giving me a chance and letting me rap with them about things on the Boiler Room. And thank all the social rejects who've supported the Oddcast. And with that, I want to say, as always, cheers and blessings to you all. Have a great week.